You're listening to Don't IEP Alone with special education advocate Lisa Leitner. For more information about Lisa, the IEP toolkit, and more ways we can help you in your process, go to adayinourshoes.com. Now back to the show with your host, Lisa. Hello and good morning. Um, I'm Lisa Leitner with A Day in Our Shoes, and thank you all for tuning in right now. Um, With me this morning is Dr. Stephanie Fields, and she is a local Philly gal like myself. Um, Pardon us if we speak with accents. (laughs) Um, I've been told I have an accent. I don't hear it, but anyway. Um, Dr. Fields is a school psychologist, parent coach, child psychologist, um, ADHD expert, and so much more. So I'm so excited to have her here today. Um, Welcome. Thank you. Um, if you want your information, I will put all of it in the show notes for the podcast. I will post it on social media. And if you subscribe to my email list, you will get it there as well. Um, so let's go ahead and, and get right into it. What is a parent coach? So I've done a lot of therapy as a psychologist. I've done family therapy with families. Uh, but now I'm moving over to parent coaching, which is different than therapy in a number of important ways. Um, Firstly, it doesn't go by all the legal kind of rules with therapy. It's kind of separate. You don't actually need to be actually even qualified. I am highly qualified, but you don't need to be. Um, And really what it does is it it works to just solve a specific problem. And um, it does not entail any diagnosis or assessment. And so as a parent coach, I'm not going to diagnose or assess a child. I'm just going to really work with the parents on addressing a specific parenting issue that they have. So let's say the child's not sleeping independently. We would just have, let's say, four sessions to address that. Or mealtime is chaotic. We would just address that. Great. What are some of the common themes that you're seeing in, you know, 2023? We're, we're definitely, you know, post-pandemic officially. Um, you know, the president has signed their, their thing and the World Health Organization. So supposedly the pandemic is over. Um, But what are some common themes that you're seeing now as we enter the summer of 2023? Uh, My my biggest concern with children these days is about their socialization. Um, I'm getting concerned about anxiety and socialization are are kind of the two big ones. Um, The anxiety is not so surprising given um, COVID and all that, but really anxiety and mental health issues have been a problem before COVID happened. Uh, really, since the early teens, there's been increasing amount of uh, concern about children, and we're seeing it more in the adolescence, but I think that it's really beginning in the childhood years um, where there's increasing levels of anxiety. And I think that it's coming out more. We're seeing it in mental health issues with our teens and, and college students, but I think that actually it's starting earlier. And the other so- thing with COVID, oh, I just want to say about COVID specifically, I just think that people aren't used to socializing as much. And I think that kids really need to be back more with friends more. So I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, I have I have two teens. One is disabled and one is not. My non-disabled child, his socialization outside of structured sports programs is very, you know, school and structured sports, it's pretty minimal. Um, and what I see is they'll all get on FaceTime and group chats and be playing the same video game together, but they're all at home in their own bedroom, in their own family room or whatever, like chatting on FaceTime, playing the same video game, but not in the same presence. 
and I've been internally concerned about it. Like, should, is that something we should be concerned about? Or is it just like, oh, well, he's socializing. Socialization just looks different now. I think it's both, actually. Because even when my son, who is a grown-up now, uh, when he was younger, some of his best friends didn't live close by. And he would get and play video games with them. And they lived, you know, in a different county, actually. And... I, I actually modified my screen time rules for him for this because I felt like it actually did count as socialization because they were chatting. They were being with each other. They were they were enjoying each other's company and sharing something with each other. So I think it counts. I think it counts kind of like 75%. I do think our children need to have the face-to-face too. Again, because essentially what you want in terms of protecting your children for later on is you want them to have the kind of relationships where if something's going wrong, if they're having a hard time, they're going to get, they're going to get social support. And I'm not sure that that, that happens in the same way over, um, over screens. Like I think they need to be in person too and play and walk around and have to look at each other and kind of be with each other's emotions. Even if they're mad at their parents, you know, that might be one that they talk about a lot. They need to be with each other with those kinds of emotions and those kinds of things. So I, I don't think that it's bad to be doing that social stuff while playing online, but I think that the other really needs to happen too to have them learn the deeper social skills of connection. And I know like some boys aren't deep, deep, but, but it's still really important for them to have these social connections. Great. So if, um, if I'm encouraging that as a parent and, you know, he said, you know, I tell him all the time because we have a pool and we have a basketball court here and we have Xbox. And, you know, I say, invite your friends over and we'll get pizza or, you know, does anybody want to come over and go swimming? Um, and nobody ever does. Like, does it just like, do I need to say, hey, you need new friends or like, how do you kind of push that if if it's not happening? I think it really does need to be pushed. I think you need to really ask him in, in a curious way, what is it that you're not bringing kids over for? Is is there something uncomfortable? You know, sometimes they're worried you're going to embarrass them. I mean, that's a very typical teen worry. Maybe they think that your food's not good. That's my, my kids say. You, I don't think that you, you the food you serve is too healthy, mom. Uh, I don't think kids are going to like it, which is actually not true. If you put out a, a thing of crudite for kids, cut up vegetables, they will demolish it. <laughs> but um, you really need to ask them what's keeping them from doing it. And then you need to help them do it. You just say, okay, it's Friday. We're going to have fun. We're going to have some people over for pool and pizza. Who are you going to invite? And really keep in a very gentle, kind way. Keep following up with them until it really happens. And, so, you know, you could say, wouldn't you be more comfortable just with two guys to start? I think two is kind of better than one. See what he prefers and then start to make it happen. And then and then once you get a couple slotted in, say, maybe you can just mention to other kids, too. They might want to come over, too. Okay. So how, as a parent, and I, I mean, just as, as a person who, you know, watches TV, I'm on social media, I have friends. Um I see news. I actually still see newspapers and magazines. Um, I feel like mental health is being talked about more and we're seeing, you know, of course we just um, closed out mental health awareness month and, you know, we're seeing a lot more about self care and more do this, do that. Do you feel like we're kind of reaching a threshold where, where people are more aware or do you think like, sometimes I feel like it's been so watered down at this point. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't really feel that that's the case. At least the families that I'm seeing. So I'm feeling seeing families that are having concerns. But um, I really do think our families. I think that our world is kind of too hurried and too stressed, and there's kind of too much we have to do. And I think that we really need to focus on. I'm going to say four major areas of mental health, which would be um, exercise, regular exercise is so important for mental health. Um, Excellent sleep, even good sleep would be great, uh, is really important. Uh, Healthy food and then appropriate socializing. And frankly, even for, for your population of special needs kids, you know, a lot of times we need to make sure these things are in place before a diagnosis can happen. Because sometimes if these are not in place, kids don't look good. So if a kid's not getting sleep, they really can look like they're, they've got ADHD. Um, and then once you get sleep in order, they're able to pay better attention. They're able to manage themselves much better. So they're really crucial to mental health and, and just your functioning in life. We interrupt this podcast to bring you a truth bomb. The IEP process never gets easier. You get better. If you do not learn the IEP process and how to use it to your advantage, your child will get left behind. That's exactly why I created the Don't IEP Alone series of advocacy courses for parents. Join us and gain the knowledge, skills, and support you need to navigate the complex world of special education and IEPs. Visit adayinourshoes.org for more information. So how long would you say to, if you're, if you're doing the four things that you said and problems are still there, like how long would you give it? Like, I know like not after a week, but like, you know, six months, 12 months, like what if it's, you know, I'm enforcing a bedtime, we eat healthy, you know, we, we exercise or my child does sports and things still aren't improving. I would say right away. I don't think you need to wait. It takes long enough to get those things into place. And so that when they are in place, if you've got everything in place and there are still problems, you don't need to wait. Oh, okay. That's, that, that's good to know. Um, Cause I think there's still, I've encountered it actually twice this week with two different um, groups of friends, the, the kind of stigma around taking medication for mental health issues. And it was the, well, you know, if she did mindfulness and yoga and this and that, and it's like, you know, and when the kid's saying, mom, I'm doing all that and it's not helping. Yes. Kind of thing. If they are suffering then. And the thing that we need to really remember about medicine uh, that a lot of people don't remember is that you can try it. A lot of medicines you can try. And if you don't like them, you can come off of them. So it really just adds to your education as to, is this an option for me? What difference does it make? And if the family doesn't like it for any reason, then the child can be either weaned off of it or for like an ADHD medicine, which, you know, just out of the system immediately, then then just stop taking it. Obviously under doctor's um, care, but it, I, th- I think that sometimes parents are reluctant to start trying it, but it's actually just part of the gathering information process about what's going to help your child. Yeah. I think we've kind of gone, you know, as they say, a pendulum swings. If you remember when you and I were kids, you got antibiotics for everything. Right. Um, And then there was that pushback on that. And then it's like, it's near impossible to even get (laughs) something prescribed and they say, Oh, go home and and it'll work itself out. Um, I feel like we're the same way with, um, 
you know, things like Ritalin and the things that were typically prescribed for children with ADHD and other disorders. Like it seemed like everyone's like, oh no, all they, all they want to do is, is give you pills. And now it's like almost impossible to get them. I right. feel like. When, when I started I in my practice, I, I really did everything that I could to keep kids off medicine. I did every behavioral thing. And sometimes it would take like a year or two and the parents would be like, and then, and then they would try the medicine and they were like, Oh, it's like night and day. I see the child that my child always was inside. And they, they started to tell me that they were really sorry that they waited so long that they feel like they, their child lost a lot of good time. And so that's why I don't think that you should wait too, too long, but you have to get some of the behavioral stuff in order. You know, there needs to be good behavior management and, you know, good sleep and that kind of thing needs to be there first. Great. Um, so as a parent coach, like if someone wanted to, if someone is listening to us right now and saying, oh, wow, you know what? I'm having some of these same issues. Like what should they expect if they reach out to you or hire a parent coach? They would expect, you know, uh, usually a free consultations call that's usually about a half an hour long. So there'll be a good amount of chatting to see what the issues are. And then both the parent and the coach will see, is this a match for coaching? You know, the other thing is to know that, you know, maybe it's actually a therapy case. Maybe they really do need to see a therapist and they really can't see a coach. They need kind of more intensive work or the child needs an assessment or some diagnosis, that kind of thing. And so there'll be a nice conversation about what the issues are. Um, They'll probably get some tips about how they get started. And then together they would talk about what sort of would be possible. And usually I think just one or two goals would be defined and then they could move forward on just working on those goals. Okay, great. Um, one of the things that interested me when you when we connected on email is that you are a former school psychologist. Um, so of course, part of IEP teams, I'm sure when you were um, when you were working in that capacity. If you had an audience of IEP parents like you do now, as a child psychologist, what is the one thing that you would say? Like, oh, so I always say my audience, my people, my, they don't know what they don't know, right? right. Um, the IEP process is so big and cumbersome and it's become this big beast of a thing. What is one thing that you say, oh, I wish parents would really do this or I wish they knew this about school psychologists or IEPs or the school, you know, I'm sure you did a lot of evaluations, things like that. Like, what do you wish they knew or, you know, and, and my therapy clients had, had IEPs also. So um, one thing that and your, your population probably does know this, but that um, the parents really need to be on top of the IEP and make sure that it's being implemented. And so it's your child even though there's this IEP that's a legal document, you really need to still be on top of it and make sure what's happening needs to, needs to happen. And the other thing is to really look at the um, specialty design instruction and make sure it matches your needs. And so let's say you're having a child that just is not doing homework. You're just, you're arguing with your child for three hours every day. It's kind of ruining your family life. Then you need to go back to the IEP team and say, look, this is not working. They've got too much homework. It's not working for our family. We need to think of something that we can change to make this a more workable for our family, either not having homework at all, having some time to do it in school, something like that. But the team should come up together to think about what can we change to make this work because it's not working. That's funny. I had a speech therapist on a couple of years ago who said kind of the same thing that teachers don't create 
homework with the intention of like ruining your family time. Like that's not the intent of homework. And there are so many families who are kind of suffering in silence and doing this night after night with hours and tears and fights and resisting um, and not realizing that, you know, you can and should speak up if it's not working for you. Absolutely. You need to speak up whenever something's going on. Even if you just, your child tells you something, it just like doesn't quite ring true. Then you need to just go in with curiosity to the school and say, this is what my son mentioned. Can you, can you speak more about it? You know, that kind of thing. Don't like sort of go in accusing because you know, sometimes kids don't report exactly accurately or their perceptions are different, but um, to really have an ongoing conversation with the school and really be in touch and kind of know what's going on and really feel free to ask. And if let's say school's coming with a concern, you can, you say, can you really explain to me what that looks like? I'm having trouble visualizing it. You should be able to visualize what the concern is and then say, well, what can we do about that? You know, it's kind of the school's job. So how can, what kind of accommodations can we make for that? Um, as a school psychologist, you probably, you know, you know, you did a lot of evaluations or assessments for IEPs. Um, some of the most frequently asked questions I get are surrounding assessments and evaluations. And they'll say, you know, on the WISC or the WIAT, they scored a this or a this on the BASC, on the this, on the that. And, and I, I'm always telling people, like, it, it's actually a defined portion of IDEA that the school has to provide you with someone who can explain these assessments to you. You know, you don't have to be out on your own because I'm not a school psychologist. Like, of course, because of what I do, I'm a lot more familiar with the WISC and the Wyatt and all those things because I've seen so many of them. But as a parent, I remember the first time I was like, what is this? It was just, you know, a table of numbers and this and that and percentiles. Yeah. Um, how how, I mean, I don't want to say how often, but I don't know. Could you speak to that as far as, I don't know why parents are so leery of reaching out and asking their school for assistance and especially in explaining assessments. You know, I feel so badly when I hear that because that is not how it's supposed to be. Really, those reports are very technical and they're not really meant for parents to read them. They're meant for, for to be explained to parents. And frankly, for me, that was the most enjoyable part of, of an assessment was doing a really nice feedback. And, and again, I was very lucky that my whole team was there. The whole IP team was there when I explained to the parent the entire evaluation in relatively simple terms, but kind of clear. And sort of what do these numbers mean? And just highlight the important ones because a lot of numbers you don't even look at. You know, this, you'll say math was fine. And then you move on. You know, and, and then you say the issues here are in reading or, or whatever, or the Basque shows this and the home one is this and the parent was this. But, so um, to me, that that's the only point of assessment is to actually teach the team and teach the parent about this child. There's so much work goes into the evaluation and the write up that if people haven't learned from it, it's just such a waste. And so. I frankly thought it was the most enjoyable part and the most meaningful part of doing evaluation is really doing a nice feedback. And so if parents aren't getting that, if they have even one question, they should call the school and ask for at least a phone conversation where the, where the psychologist can explain everything. That's excellent. Cause I think, um, and, and I don't think that, I think that schools are going over it in meetings, but I think it's so much to absorb that, you know, and then they don't want to go back and ask. 
I think is, I don't know. And I don't, I, I understand where the intimidation comes from, but at the same time, I don't like, cause it's, again, it's, you know, it's an IDEA that the school has to provide you with someone to understand these assessments. Right. Right. And the challenge is that sometimes it happens with the whole team there. And then you're like, how, like a parent's got there. It's the principal and the teacher and all these people. And they're not going to maybe feel comfortable asking their questions, which is totally understandable, but they should have a meeting. They should have, they should really just ask for a separate meeting. Yeah. Yeah. They can really understand the evaluation. It's very important. It really guides all the thinking. And so they should understand what it means. And, and right. it'll, it'll help them understand their child to understand what can I predict was is going on with my child. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I always try to use these different analogies as far as like, if I go to my doctor's office and there's an MRI report or an x-ray or, you know, any of these things, like I don't, you know, even blood work, like, you know, we get the blood work results from different things. Like, I don't understand what that means. And, and right. I shouldn't, right. Cause I'm not the doctor. So right. um, I'm just going to answer that comment about sure. school psychologists not attending IP meetings. Actually, I often did not. The school psychologist usually is overburdened with evaluations. And so um, there, the, the, the evaluation that they do um, guides the IEP, but they often aren't at the IP meetings. So the meetings that I attended were usually, you know, just sort of, um, they were kind of combined. They just happened at the school that I was at. They combined them. And so I was at the meeting, but it was really more of an evaluation feedback meeting to just sort of talk about eligibility for special ed. Yeah. Really and, and, and yeah, I probably should have clarified that the school has to provide you with someone to explain the assessments, but that doesn't necessarily have to happen at the IEP meeting. Um, no, and it might be more so. comfortable for parents for it to happen separately so they can ask their questions. Yeah, yeah, so definitely um, I wouldn't be afraid to reach out to whoever did the assessments. Um, but of course, once you get into like related services and other things, um, there might be a couple of different people, but um, don't be afraid to reach out to them and ask them those questions. I mean, again, there were so many resources put into doing this evaluation. You as a parent should understand it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you also are an expert in ADHD. Mm -hmm. um, what are some things, you know, I know a lot of my, from experience, I know a lot of my audience, um, this is something that they're living with in their household, um, either themselves or their kids. Um what are some tips or things or, oh, I wish these folks knew this or anything like that that you'd like to address? Um, you know, I'm really happy that it's really becoming so much more mainstream. You know, since I'm starting my parent coaching business, I'm on social media a lot more and I'm loving the stuff that's coming up about ADHD. I feel like there's, there's it's talked about so much more and normalized so much more and people are kind of making fun, not making fun, but they're kind of in a nice way saying, this is who I am and this is what, what I can do and what I can't do. And isn't it kind of funny? And it kind of is funny because these people are generally a little bit, not, not quirky, but kind of fun. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, in my time with, you know, working with, with kids with ADHD, I just, I found to be like a lot of fun. <laughs> and so, um, so um, it's tricky. So for children, I just think that routine is important. Um, really predictable um, connection between behavior and consequences. This is for parents more. And so I think it's really important. These kids, they don't make the connection that easily between their behavior and the consequences of their behavior. So they need a lot more repetitions. And so consistency is really important so that when a behavior happens, that there's a consistent consequence. So that connection is forged. It's much more challenging for these kids. 
Um, and parents will know if they've got one child with ADHD, one child with not. You tell the other child sometimes one time, don't don't open that door. And they, they never open it again. Uh, that's just a different kind of brain than the kind that really needs a lot of repetition and consistency. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm a I'm a Gen Xer and it just it's funny to me because I'm also now I know I am twice exceptional. Um, we didn't know that in the 70s. Um, but now and I have several college friends who, you know, we all didn't know that each other had ADHD when we were in college. And now that we're, you know, middle aged women, we're like, duh. Like, you know, so it's just, it just, it's funny to me when I hear some people say, oh, well, things are so different today. We didn't have all this ADHD when I was a kid. And I'm like, yeah, you did. We just weren't diagnosed. Right. And then people also kind of felt ashamed and felt like something was wrong with them that was a, li a little off that they didn't really understand. And now we understand it so much better. Well, that, and it was, I mean, for me personally, it was that my skill set deficiencies were treated as character flaws. And um, that's something that I, you know, I brought up with, my, I talked with another podcast guest recently. Um, and she said the same thing, like, yeah, when it's treated like, you know, and it was, oh, Lisa's not working up to her full potential and she doesn't work hard enough and she doesn't apply herself at school and things like that. And it really was treated as a, you know, that whole can't versus won't. Right, right, right. Um, argument. So I'm glad that the other thing that's not talked about as much, which actually is an issue for me too, is is the um this the sleep schedule that you know I'm still on a teenager sleep schedule in that I'm really fresh late at night and I'm not fresh in the morning. And so that's my schedule. And there is an ethic in this country that the people who are really working are working in the morning, that you need to be fresh in the morning. And those are the real people who are really working. And, and that's just not the case. And that's, a, that's, that's, that's very ingrained in our culture. Yeah. That whole, yeah. I've seen a lot of that online myself, that whole, like trying to debunk that early bird gets the worm kind of mentality the you know oh only if you go to you know early to bed early to rise like how many other different um cliches are there about about this um, right that we have to overcome because working you know 6 p.m to 2 a.m if that's when you're productive you know um and i i know i know many online business owners like myself and those are their chosen work hours you know and that's when they're work most productive so you know yeah. what does it what does it matter right <laughs> um, okay. Anything else that you'd like to add today? Anything else you want to talk about? Um, just that I really feel that, um, when stuff is going wrong in a family or when something's very stressful, like the whole big COVID thing, I just do think that people need to go back to mental health 101, make sure everyone's getting exercise, make sure people are getting good sleep, make sure you're getting healthy food and try to connect with others socially. That those are really, really important for managing our day-to-day -day lives, but also especially when there's something like a crisis, like the COVID pandemic, or there's a diagnosis of an illness in the family or something like that. If you need to think about anything, that is what you need to think about. Making sure that Mental Health 101 is kind of in place. Um, exercise, good sleep, healthy food, and connecting with others. Any tips then on the food piece? I know that's an area where we struggle in my household. Um, and I know I have many other people watching who have their, their kids have the sensory issues, things like that. Um, any, yeah. any tips on that? That is challenging. I do feel that, um, and that's not an area where I have a ton of expertise to tell you the truth. Um, but I do think that just in terms of trying to take the junky food out, I think that that's really important too. I mean, you need to accommodate some issues, but really try not to have 
the junkier food and, and make sure that they're eating healthy food and that the junky food is not an option. And when it's not an option, there will be a tendency to a little bit eat what's there. Okay. Great. Um, does anybody out there have any questions? I've seen a lot of people come and go on the Facebook page watching us today. Um, if anybody has any other questions, I don't see any. And if not, we will go ahead and sign off. Um, I want to thank you for being here today. And you can look for this video on YouTube. And this will also be on wherever you listen to podcasts. It'll be published on there as well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Don't IEP Alone with special education advocate Lisa Leitner. We're so glad you've joined us and would love to connect with you outside of the show. For more information about Lisa, the IEP toolkit, and more ways we can help you in your process, go to adayinourshoes.com. From self-care tips to common IEP mistakes, there's even more to explore. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast and subscribe to never miss an episode. Until next time, don't IEP alone, and you don't have to.